Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to Solutions Watch. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. It is March of 2023, and today we're going to be talking to a guest that should be familiar to Corbett Reporteers, if only because she has been a guest on the Corbett Report many times in the past, although I do know not for a number of years now, so it is good to have her back on. I am talking, of course, about Ellen Brown, who you will remember I just put up recently in a flashback episode where we flash back to our 2015 conversation on the G20 bank rules for bank bail-ins. So hopefully you will have refreshed yourself with Ellen Brown and her work. If not, of course, you can find her books, including, of course, The Web of Debt and uh, Banking on the People, Democratizing Money in the Digital Age, on her website, ellenbrown.com, where you can also find her blog, where she has written some very interesting posts recently that we're going to be talking about. Uh, Ellen Brown, thank you very much for coming back on The Corporate Report. Oh, thanks, James. And it's great to be talking to you again. Yeah, it is good to be talking to you, especially because we are obviously dealing with um, some interesting banking-related matters that are very much up your alley in terms of what you write and talk and think about. And I will note that it was on February 25th that you posted up a very interesting blog post on what will happen when banks go bust, bank runs, bail-ins, and systemic risk, which, for those not keeping track at home, predated the Silicon Valley Bank shenanigans and the Credit Suisse shenanigans and whatever else is happening in the banking world this week um, by a couple of weeks. So what crystal ball were you staring into? How did you know that this is where this was trending? I don't know. I don't remember now. Uh, <laughs> oh, it was the, uh, it, th- that was in November that the FDIC had this webinar or this webcast that some people say it was slipped onto the net, but it looked to me like they intended to, I don't know, who knows. But anyway, and it was all over the net and everybody was all upset. They're going to take our money. And, and But if you listen to the whole thing, which I actually laboriously did, um, that I re- actually sympathized with them. You know, they, they actually have a serious problem here that it's the problem of our banking system, the problem we've always had, which is, that uh, banks lend other people's money. That's just the way banking works. And they lend many times more dollars than they actually have, uh, than they actually keep as capital or keep as reserves. And so it all works fine as long as people leave their money in the bank. But as soon as people start getting suspicious, then they're bank runs. So, So one man said, um, that there would be bank runs you know, or bail-ins, you know. So in 2010, under the Dodd-Frank Act, instead of bailouts, it was the, the the news was no more bailouts. You know, we've solved the problem. But the way they solved the problem was with bail-ins, meaning that they would take the money of their creditors. Now, the good news was that if you had under $250,000 which in the bank, which most individuals do, um, then you were covered by FDIC insurance. But then, of course, the problem is FDIC insurance, the fund itself only has, um, well, I should have finished that. So if you had more than that, then your money would be used. It, I mean, it was required under the under the law that, they, that this bankrupt bank was supposed to take the creditors' money and turn it into capital, recapitalize themselves with that money, which they could do legally because 
by law, when you put your money in the bank, you are lending it to the bank. It's no longer your money. It's just like if you use your credit card or whatever. I mean, if you take out a loan, that's your money that you can spend as you will. So that's what banks are allowed to do, except for the restrictions on what they can do. But anyway, so they're allowed to turn it into capital and or at least certainly under this, uh, the Dodd-Frank Act, that's what they're allowed to do. And that's what they're supposed to do. So that was the alarming part. But that still should all work fine, except for the derivatives, which under the 2005 Bankruptcy Act, um, derivatives and repo repo loans go first in a bankruptcy so i mean it's not it, you're not even in bankruptcy they avoid the bankruptcy court altogether they're allowed to just go in and snatch their collateral and that's actually what happened to lehman brothers and to bear stearns that i think it was jp morgan or goldman sachs anyway they rushed in and snatched all the collateral and made a bank that would otherwise have been solvent insolvent and so and because these big derivatives banks have like trillions of dollars of derivatives on their books uh, uh, to the tune of 600 trillion globally, according to the um, World Economic, or sorry, the um, Bank for uh, International Settlements. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> Bank yeah, for International yeah. Settlements in Basel, uh, 600 billion. And the, it's been alleged, rumored, like up to a quadrillion. I've seen two quadrillion, two and a half quadrillion. Nobody really knows because they're most of these um, deals, they're, they're basically bets. And most of these bets are pra- uh, placed privately over the counter. So they're not they're not kept track of. Well, once you get to 600 trillion, perhaps, you know... A quadrillion, two quadrillion. Anyway, many times larger than the entire GDP of the Earth. So I think it's safe to say a big, giant, gaping maw of a black hole of debt that could unspin and unwind, which is essentially, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the fundamental fear of uh, the the real, complete, catastrophic uh, taking down of the global economy if one of these too big to fails fails. That's why we have this concept of too big to fail or systemically important financial institution or whatever they're calling them this week, right? Right. Yeah. And the problem with the derivatives then is that it, it they made sense when it was a farmer protecting his uh, what the price might be of his corn, you know, when when at harvest time. And so you could place a, a bet, so to, you know, a, a futures contract on the corn and sell it at a, cer- a certain price. And then you would know what you're going to get, even if prices went down. Um, but in the derivatives casino, you're allowed to bet whether or not you're a farmer, whether or not you have anything to do with corn. And so you have all these wild bets going that are just just bets. I mean, it's like futures contracts or, you know, people sell things short, et cetera, where they have no actual interest in the thing. Anyway, yeah, you know all that. (laughs) So so it's a big, huge, big, huge um, pot of money out there that can take down a, a bank that even a viable bank. And I noticed that on Silicon Valley Bank, if we're talking about current events here, uh 
they their problem was they actually put their money in very what was called pristine collateral you know the the safest place that they could put it they put mm -hmm. it in federal securities but unfortunately they were long-term federal securities because at that time you could get almost nothing on the short you know if you wanted to get any kind of return it had to be long term and the criticism, I mean, so they did the safe thing. They did what they were supposed to do. But the criticism is that they didn't protect those bonds against interest rate risks with the derivatives. But if they had, I mean, let's assume everybody's protecting all that stuff. Somebody is taking the hit. All you're doing is passing the risk off to somebody else. So who is that somebody else? Maybe Credit Suisse. I've actually tried to research that because it seems to me that they must have you know they, they must have a an interest rate problem somebody's got to have these interest rate derivatives somebody must be the counterparty taking the other side of the bet and they're they must all be going down but you don't see that in the news but then arguably we know that we don't see in the news what everything that's going on so anyway no. i wonder about that. no exactly right it seems to me okay so this Today, we're speaking in the context of Solutions Watch, where we concentrate on solutions, not problems. But in order to come up with a viable solution to a problem of this magnitude, of course, we can't approach the problem with naivety. We have to understand that the problem isn't just something that could be tinkered with here or there on the outside edges of the system as it exists. It's the fundamental baked-into-the-cake nature of the banking system and the way that it currently functions that has created this as we say, this incredible quadrillion-dollar looming black hole, um, that do we really think there's going to be some piece of legislation that will be passed by Congress tomorrow that will put this all to bed? Um, probably not, I would tend to say. But then that does raise the question, okay, then what is, A, the average average mom-and-pop investor or someone with a little bit of retirement savings, what are they supposed to do? And then B, how do we approach the, the entire problem on a systemic level at a more structural level? Um, stage of, of the banking system itself. So first things first, I, I don't know if you noticed, but a lot of people are apparently taking their money out of the regional banks because, uh-oh, you know what's going on, and flocking to JP Morgan and Citi and all of these major banks that themselves are the core of this system of corruption that we've been talking about before. Uh, just fundamentally flawed system. So obviously that doesn't seem the right thing to do. But what alternatives are there? What could possibly exist other than putting our money in the big, safe, sound, big banks that are too big to fail so we know the government will bail them out or in or whatever the case may be in the event of the next crisis? Mm -hmm. Well, if I could just go back to where we are right now just a little bit. So the, what the Federal Reserve has done is set up this special special purpose vehicle, which is like the ones that were set up for covid and so now the banks like Silicon Valley Bank, too bad they're they're bankrupt. You know, they put them in bankruptcy first and then they came up with a solution like two days later. But what they what other banks that are in that position can do is take these long term bonds and they can take a loan against, the you know, post those bonds as collateral in the in the um, Fed dis, at the Fed discount window, basically, or at this um term lend lending thing but anyway it's you know it's the same thing <laughs> borrow it from the fed post your collateral borrow from the fed at a pretty hefty interest rate it's not like uh, a bailout because they're not getting free money they they have to pay that back in a year theoretically though we know they'll roll it over but it's, they say it's in a year 
and it's an interest rate of 4.83% last time I looked, or 4.69, I guess it was for that actual facility. But anyway, um, you're paying quite a bit of interest to do this, but at least in the short term or in the next year that you've got a year to sort it out, you can pay off all your depositors if there's a run, or ideally you can say, no worries, we've got the money, you know, no need to run <laughs> because because we've got we've got enough liquidity to cover withdrawals if that happens. So it seems to me that, well, the fundamental problem is the problem of all banking relies on borrowing other people's money. In other words, it's the old, it's a wonderful life problem of Jimmy Stewart or George Bailey with his savings alone, or it's actually the problem of the savings loans that went down in the 1980s for the same reason. They made these long-term loans, but they used their customers' money. And then when, and then when interest rates shot up, they they couldn't come up with enough money to pay the customers who wound up with you. So they wound up same deal. Um, so one flaw is that banks are lending other people's money, and another flaw, but it wasn't even a, the the Silicon Valley Bank issue that that banks lend money they don't have, like they they multiply it many times over. But that is wasn't even the problem here. It was really just lending other people's money. So just as conceptually, if you go to back to the first ever American public bank, which was the the uh, Pennsylvania Land Bank, where the government, because we they didn't have the kind of digital stuff we have now, instead of creating it on their books, they actually printed dollars. But it was the same thing. Basically, they printed money as credit. Benjamin Franklin said, you know, he thought this was a great idea. If the farmers just had a little credit, there wasn't much going on in um Pennsylvania at that time, the economy was like pretty dead. And but if the farmers just had a little credit, it's had a little money that they could pay for workers and materials, and then they would pay that back when when the produce, you know, when the crops came in or whatever. And so the, it wasn't inflationary. Adam Smith wrote about it and said that the currency held its value as against co- uh, gold, unlike the other you know, other colonies that just printed and spent it, that obviously was inflationary. But if you printed it and lent it and it had to come back, it was a good system. So it seems to me that actually that is what we should nationalize is the credit pool. It it shouldn't be other people's money. Your money should be totally secure in the bank, every all deposit that should be sequestered. It really is your money. It's not a pot, it's not a pot of gold like people think, or it's not even a box with a number of paper dollar bills in it like people think. But it should be there when you want it. So if you could separate out um, the deposits from the credit, it's pretty much like this term lending facility that the um, that the Fed has set up that you could. You could post your your bond, you know, your your promise to pay in the future. You could monetize your future productivity by going. In fact, that's it says that in the Federal Reserve Act that they they are allowed to discount commercial paper, which means they can take the debt of a corporation and uh, give them money for it, like discounted. So maybe give them ninety five percent of on the dollar, you know, for what. The, 
anyway, th th that's actually a function that the Fed is allowed to do and is supposed to do. And it's supposed to do it for local governments as well, but they don't seem to do it. But anyway, they could do that. So you've got this great credit pool, which is the Federal Reserve, you know, this deep pocket, the ability to generate money is needed. Well, what is money? Credit is just, and I mean, it's credit. All money is all money is debt. People say that like a criticism, but that's actually a good thing. I mean, it's all money is you've received something. Oh dear. You received something and, and you, whoever you received it from doesn't want the thing you have to return to give in return. And so you give them a little receipt, you know, which is your promise to pay from some other source. I mean, all money is debt. It really is. That's what it is. It's or it's credit. Better. That sounds better to say all money is credit. Right. Uh, for people who are un, 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 uh, unhappy with that terminology, I'd point them to debt the first 5,000 years by uh, David Graeber. The recently deceased David Graeber, uh, an excellent study that goes into the meaning of that. What does that mean and why is it important that money is credit and why is this not the evil thing that we've, we tend to think when we put it in those terms and why is there such a sort of almost religious and uh, ethical consideration that gets slapped on to that concept of, of debt and credit. But all of that to the side for the moment, I'm with you on the the fundamentals of what you're saying, but nationalize and putting this credit power in the hands of politicians that we know lie to us at every opportunity. That's a fundamental mm. problem. No matter what you do with it, nobody trusts the banks. Nobody trusts the government. And so the first number one issue to work out is to come up with a government that actually represents the people. But but at least conceptually, ideally, we could have a number of local public banks. I mean, we don't want a Soviet system with like one big bank that controls everything. That didn't work out so well. But a lot of little public banks would be a good idea. And now we have the technology to interconnect them in ways, you know, so they could share credit and all that kind of, you know, they can transfer stuff. Um, so your public bank, at least... I mean, it, let's assume you had a public bank right now instead of Silicon Valley Bank. At least the profits would go back to the public and they would have a mandate to serve the public interest. You would know that they were, you know, behaving responsibly. And somehow you need to be able to tap this deep pool of liquidity. It seems to me what needs to be nationalized or, you know, collective or a, a common good is this pool of credit, this pool of liquidity, the ability to turn your money into, or your, sorry, your credit into something you can spend. And we could sit, that is pretty much what the cryptocurrency models were, at least, you know, the coins that supposedly you could spend on something. I mean, it turned into something else, but the whole idea of a crypto a digital representation of a thing that you will produce in the future and but people will buy it now in order to give you the funds to spend it in the future which is exactly the model that benjamin franklin was talking about you know some way to monetize your future productivity that's what that's what make credit makes the world go round as they say it makes the economy run anyway so of course you know my model is always <laughs> public banks you know we should have a lot of not one big public bank but a whole lot of little local public banks although 
it wouldn't be a bad idea to have one big national infrastructure bank because we have a serious infrastructure problem right now. And of course, FDR was facing the very same problem that we are. I mean, people, some people are arguing that, that we're going into a worse depression than, than the 1930s. The banks were bankrupt. Taxpayers weren't earning anything, so they weren't paying. So the government was out of funds. And yet somehow they managed to build these wonderful things like the Hoover Dam and, you know, these things that you still that are still around, like the, this wonderful artwork. Like, who? how did they have the money to pay for all these artists, et cetera? Well, what they used was the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, which was a, a publicly owned institution set up by President Hoover, um, actually to save the banks. But um it was actually Jesse Jones who was in charge of the Reconstruction Finance Corporation turned it into a money generating machine for producing all this stuff that the country needed. But it was all productive. It was specifically productive. I mean, they, they gave loans for small things like farmers could get loans from it. And they funded World War II, which we may not think is so productive. But no. <laughs> that's precisely that's precisely why I am not for this. Because you give them money power to p politicians, they will use it for war and other things. Oh, we didn't mean that. <laughs> don't use the lever for that. Oops. Um, so, uh, as an anarchist, I I don't think I think government is fundamentally immoral. I don't think it should exist at all. I'm all for voluntary associations of people coming together to create communities of interest and funding those communities of interest through credit systems that are uh, established and agreed upon in voluntary consent by a community. And on that note, I will note at the very, very end of your um, looming quadrillion dollar uh, derivative crisis uh, tsunami uh, blog post, you talk about alternative solutions, including... Um, you talk about the public banking uh, solution and, and bills for a national investment bank, etc. But you do write at the end, all those alternatives, however, depend on legislation, which may be too late. Uh, meanwhile, self-sufficient, intentional communities are growing in popularity if that option is available to you. Community currencies, including digital currencies, can be used for trade. They can be labor dollars or food dollars backed by the goods and services for which the community has agreed to accept them. Um, and you have a link to an earlier article on that. The technology now exists to form a network of community cryptocurrencies that are asset-backed and privacy-protected. But that's a subject for another column. Well, I am waiting with bated breath for that column, but perhaps you could just introduce that subject before we uh, we go here. Okay, well, I'm not a techie myself, but I'm actually working with somebody who tells me that all this, that the technology has come so far that it it's actually possible. You know, you have these computer games that set up actual economies and it's sort of like the old monopoly game where you can see how it works out and supposedly the original monopoly game was all about land value tax and it got corrupted into a actual monopoly game um but anyway so you can set up your model you could have all different models of banking systems that can actually communicate with each other and you wouldn't have to have it wouldn't have to be run through like a central bank or anything central because it's programmed into the it's in the program anyway allegedly this is all possible but i'll have to <laughs> wait <laughs> report on that because i don't really have all the details yet excellent well we are very much looking forward to that because uh that's more in line with where i think uh, i would be interested in putting my efforts and energies uh but you have a lot of incredibly important points on this and you've written entire books on these concepts and these uh, solutions. 
we can only skim the surface of this conversation in a short time frame like this, but I do appreciate you coming on to bring this to our attention. I would wholeheartedly exhort the audience who are interested in this to go and take a look at your re recent blog posts and then start delving into your books and getting more into the, the depths of the, uh, the types of uh, things that we're talking about here today. But I think we'll leave it there for today. Ellen Brown, thank you very much for coming on and, and sharing this with us. Oh, my pleasure and great talking to you.